0: Welcome to CME on ReachMD. The following activity titled, Selecting the Right Patient for Systemic Therapy in CSCC, a Care Team Forum, is jointly provided by AKH Incorporated, Advancing Knowledge in Healthcare, and RMEI Medical Education, LLC. Prior to beginning, please be sure to review the faculty information and disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. For more episodes in this series, visit ReachMD.com CSCC.
1: Hello, and welcome to Selecting the Right Patient for Systemic Therapy in Cutaneous Squamous Cell Carcinoma, the second of a two-part care team forum. I'm Dr. Chris Schmaltz, Director of MOSE and Dermatologic Surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Associate Professor of Dermatology at Harvard Medical School. I'm once again joined by my colleagues, Dr. Omed Hamid, Chief of Translational Research and Immunotherapy, Director of Melanoma Therapeutics, and a practicing medical oncologist at the Angeles Clinic and Research Institute in Los Angeles, and Dr. Enoki Jambusaria, a practicing dermatologist from the Del Seton Medical Center at the University of Texas. Jim and his wife Joyce are joining us again. Jim is both a patient of mine as well as a cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma survivor, He shared his experiences with us in the first part of this series, and we're glad to have him back again for this one. Welcome to you all. So to recap, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma is a very common form of skin cancer, about a million cases per year in the United States. It's generally highly curable. The surgical cure rates can be as high as 99% for your average case. But there is a small subset of patients, approximately 2 to 3% who can develop metastasis and approximately 1% who even can go on to die from disease. We now have our first FDA-approved drug to combat patients with these advanced tumors. It's a PD-1 inhibitor um, called Simiplimab, And trials to date with this medication have shown about a 50% overall response rate. And the safety profile's been consistent with other PD-1 inhibitors, so it's quite a well-tolerated medication, which is particularly helpful in our patient population, which tends to be elderly and frail. Jim, can you please recap your experience with cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma? Sure.
2: Back in 2016, I found a growth on my neck, had it checked out and come to find out that it was the uh, uh, cancerous. um, Had it removed and went on uh, chemo uh, therapy in a uh, treatment that didn't work well, and I was given the opportunity to try or to go on the clinical trial, which in my case turned out to be very successful. Um, I'm very happy with how things turned out for me. So,
1: thank you. In two years prior to the neck mass, you'd had a your original squamous cell cancer on the cheek, which was presumably the tumor that led to the metastasis. Correct.
2: Yeah, I had like a, a a pimple or what I thought was a pimple, and it turned out to be a little bit more serious than that. But that was removed, and then for two years I had no no idea that anything had uh, continued it or if if they were even related. But pretty much that that was the, uh, the how it went. So.
1: All right. So talking about the simiplimab trial, in, in any type of trial, cl- clinical trial, there are inclusion-exclusion criteria. And Dr. Jamisaria, could you tell us a little bit about how you think those inclusion-exclusion criteria may or may not be applied to the current population of patients where we might like to use a PD-1 inhibitor?
3: Absolutely. So for the clinical trial, um, the inclusion criteria was that you had had to have a histologically confirmed cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma that could be measured by resist criteria. Um, You had to be pretty healthy and have good uh, liver, renal, and bone marrow function. Um, And then the most important part was that you had to be a poor surgical candidate. So you had to either have metastatic disease, um, have multiple recurrences in the same location, um, have significant local invasion, or have um, significant morbidity associated with surgery, I was dis- as was discussed previously. Um, you were excluded from the trial if you had a history of solid organ transplantation or were on immunomodulators, if you had some type of autoimmune disease, um, such as you know, inflammatory bowel disease or lupus that required immunosuppression, um, if you were on continuous steroids for any reason, um, or if you had a history of infections such as HIV or hepatitis. Um, you know, In the real world, I think, I think that these are generally good guidelines um, in terms of when you think about which patients you want to consider Simimplumab um, or PD-1 inhibitor for. However, you know, as with all clinical trials, um, clinical trials are going to be designed with a very narrow scope. And so um, some of these exclusion criteria, I would actually consider um, putting one of these patients on um, a PD-1 inhibitor. So for example, um, if they have chronic lymphocytic leukemia, um, I think that, you know, that would be a discussion where I would consider that. Or, you know, even if they had inflammatory bowel disease and um, systemic lupus, even if they were on an immunosuppression, I think that would be a discussion that to be had of, you know, their risk of their lupus flaring versus the risk of their, you know, advanced or metastatic squamous cell carcinoma progressing. And so, um, I, I feel like the exclusion criteria um, would not necessarily apply as much to me, um, in in this population, but certainly the inclusion criteria, that's kind of how I think about who might be a good candidate for this
1: medicine. Dr. Hamid, in your practice, how do you determine who gets systemic immunotherapy?
4: Right, for me, I can think back to my first patient where I thought Simiplumab was an opportunity, and that's a patient who had a recurrent uh, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma in an area around the orbit, where there was concern about nerve invasion, where radiation and surgery would probably not render them free of disease. There would be microscopic remain. And also those options would have a contraindication whether it would be disfiguring with the loss of an eye or that it would be in an area where radiation may cause visual field defects. And this is a patient where we discussed initially bringing on a PD-1 inhibitor to evaluate, benefit, and go forward.
1: Dr. Jambastaria, how about you? Tell us a little bit about your early patients on semiflumab.
3: Yeah, so the first patient that I had a discussion with about putting on semiflumab was a a younger uh, woman who had metastatic squamous cell to the uh, inguinal nodes, actually, um, and surgery would be um, very difficult, very um, morbid procedure to remove the primary tumor. It was a very large tumor, um, and ultimately, um, the patient, you know, decided that surgery was not really a good option for her, that she wasn't, she didn't want to go undergo surgery, and so um, ultimately, the decision was made to um, put her on a PD-1 inhibitor.
1: Similarly, my first patient who we enrolled in the Simiplumab trial was um, a person in her early 90s when she started the trial, and um, she was able to tolerate the drug for over a year before she finally progressed, but she went on trial because she had a large um, tumor just right over her um, joint space of her knee. And um, it was felt that to, uh, to try to remove the tumor, we'd be into the joint space. Um, she'd probably end up having infection or complications of that joint space, which in somebody her age, if they lose their ability to ambulate well, is really going to um, be probably even a potential morbidity risk um, once someone in their 90s is immobilized. And then also she had diffuse um, squamous cell carcinomas to a lesser degree over both of her legs. And so the hope was that we could bring um, her legs overall into much better condition. Um, the, the drug did work for a time on the largest tumor, um, but it had intermediate effects on her background field cancerization. Um, do you, Dr. Jambusaria, do you think about using um, immunotherapy, systemic immunotherapy, to control field cancerization?
3: Yeah, so... Um... You know, I, traditionally that has kind of not been the mainstay of treatment. I mean, we have lots of different treatment options um, for field cancerization, which mostly include, you know, topical chemotherapy, other topical creams, or um, uh, light therapy like photodynamic therapy, um, you know, from um, some of the anecdotal evidence in the clinical trials, the medication was not as effective in helping with background field cancerization as the investigators would have hoped. And so I think, you know, right now the jury's out there as to whether or not this medicine should be utilized for use for background field cancerization.
1: So we know from the simiplimab trial that there's an overall response rate of about 50 percent, and so half of our patients will be responders, half won't be Um, Could you just talk a little bit, Dr. Hamid, about um, steps for non-responders? What do you do for that 50% of patients who don't respond?
4: So for those 50%, I would look to see if there's another type of immunotherapeutic protocol to move on to. There's great data about oncolytics, which are injectables directly into the tumor that can stimulate an immune response. And those are being looked at in patients who don't get an initial single-agent response going into combination. As I've mentioned, PD-1 is not the only checkpoint inhibitor. There are checkpoint stimulators and checkpoint inhibitors that are coming out in single-agent form or in combinations. And that's where I would look to take these patients, as we've seen that we can uh, initiate a response even after progression. Uh, There's data coming forth from uh, radiation, the ability for radiation to uh, stimulate the induction of antigen and antigen release to reignite the immune system. So I would say I would go looking for what has been successful in other immunogenic tumors and move them forward.
1: Dr. Jim Bessaria, is there any way to select patients in advance who are more or less likely to respond to immunotherapy?
3: Yeah, I don't think we really know the answer to that just yet. Um, I think, you know, from the clinical trial, there were no predictive markers that would help differentiate responders from non-responders, but there's a lot of current research and studies going on to look at, to address that very question. And so um, hopefully in the next few years, we'll have an answer to that so we can kind of try to pick the right patients who will then receive the maximal benefit from the medication.
1: For those patients who do respond, the fortunate 50%, the response, uh, we still haven't seen the median response um, that, that's just beginning to be plateauing. And so we're hopeful that, um, that most of the patients who do achieve a response, especially those people who achieve a complete response, are going to be able to maintain that response. But as we talked about in the last segment, um, we, we don't quite have that data yet. We're only out to about a year. So five-year um, survival hasn't been reported yet. Dr. Hamid, could you talk a little bit about the average time to response? Um, how quickly are you going to know if somebody's a responder or non-responder?
4: So traditionally, the responses in this tumor type have been rather early, somewhere between the middle of after one month to two months. And you'll see a significant proportion of patients have that. But I would hold steady for anyone who looks like they're having a disease control at the onset and moving forward. As we've seen with this tumor and other tumors, that you can initially begin as with a stability of response that then becomes... A more durable and deeper response.
1: Jim, could you tell us a little bit about when you first felt that you were responding to therapy?
2: I, I really think it was pretty quick in the in the process. I mean, Joyce, is the caregiver, would have seen it better than me, but I would think maybe three, four, three to four weeks. I I felt that that it, it you know I was getting a positive response, but again, Joyce is the one that was kind of.
5: I would say w- w- what I was seeing initially. Um, and of course, you, you're so focused on looking for these changes, you know, because it was so visual. Um, what we saw was, um, or what I saw was changes. It was like I couldn't say they were getting smaller, or uh, you know, but I didn't see new ones, and I saw changes, you know, like. But I didn't know what that meant. You know, I'd see like, sort of a, maybe like a, the tumor would develop a core. And I'd see, like, white spots. And, I, again, I didn't know, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that it's, that's, and as it turned out, it, it turned into disease regression. It was just, but that's how it started. And then they, they would, each time, they would just be, you know, smaller. And it would be like, this is definitely smaller. This is definitely, you know, and then they just sort of melted away.
1: Dr. Ahamian, what advice would you give clinicians treating patients today? With advanced
4: cutaneous squamous cell? I think it's uh, important to evaluate this data that's come up and this therapeutic option. Just like I have in my clinic, it's become a multidisciplinary uh, experience for every patient where we involve radiation and our uh, dermatological partners. I think it's easier to recommend this therapy given that this class of drugs has clearly been in the clinic for other solid tumors, but the belief comes from treating a patient and seeing the benefits. What I would say to patients and physicians alike, it's a very tolerable regimen. The side effects are rather benign and insidious. We have to look out for them. And educating your patients about the immune-related adverse events is important to identify and treat them quickly so that we can get maximal benefit.
1: NCCN guidelines have recently been updated to reflect the data of the Simiplumab trial to let clinicians know that immunotherapy is an option for patients with unresectable disease or metastatic disease. Jim, from your perspective, what would you advise doctors treating patients like you?
2: well, I think it like I was very fortunate at, at dana faba they they kept me very well informed they you know if they wanted to know of any changes g i problems rashes you know itchiness, anything at all, and they also again said you know things might get a little worse before they get better, so um I was handled very, you know, very well, and I think, you know, if you just tell a patient that, you know, there might be some side effects, but what they could be, at least you're aware of it, because if you don't know that that's a possibility, you might have a tendency to think that there's something else going on, but uh, I was very happy with the way that things were handled for me. There were no, no surprises, I guess, is what I'm, you know, where I'm going with that, so.
1: So these photographs here illustrate a patient of mine with cutaneous lymphocytic leukemia, CLL, for whom I wished I would have had some Iplomab available at the time. Uh, This patient had, as you can see on the left in 2009, um, a a large, deeply invasive squamous cell carcinoma. And that tumor was successfully um, excised via Mohs surgery, um, with the craniectomy uh, centrally for an area of um, superficial bone invasion, and it never recurred. the The central photos from November of 2014 show that resected surgical site on the far right. But then, unfortunately, he developed multiple other tumors on the mid uh, the mid left side of his scalp. Particularly, the one with the blue circle um, shows frank bone invasion, gross bone invasion. And that tumor, unfortunately, was not able to be completely resected. Intraoperatively, when the craniectomy was attempted, the patient became hypotensive. And so complete resection of that bony area was not able to be undertaken. And you can see that he very rapidly progressed um, so that it was as if we'd done no surgery at all on him um, by about uh, five months later. And this patient ultimately succumbed to his disease with extensive dural extension as he suffered more bone erosion from the tumor. The story of this next patient highlights some of the real clinical dilemmas that we face in this disease and a fairly typical story. Uh, This is a renal transplant patient who had a large squamous cell carcinoma of his central cheek about a decade ago. And over that decade, he underwent several different surgeries, first by a plastic surgeon and then by myself, um, in total about um, five different surgeries, culminating with loss of his eye, as you can see here in the photograph on the right, um, and a free flap. And despite these various surgical attempts and two courses of radiation, the tumor continued to recur and you can see several different erosions around the surgical side, as well as an area of intransit metastasis below his ear, um, and a new erosion on his uh, nasal mucosa. And so it's clear in a patient like this that our attempts at surgery and radiation have failed, um, and this is certainly someone who falls into the unresectable category. I think had we had um, smiplumab available, we probably would not have undertaken his final surgery, which led to loss of the eye, um, because at that point, he'd already failed several surgical attempts and the two courses of radiation, and the odds of really controlling this disease um, really start to lessen with this kind of a clinical picture. Um, we, But his situation is increasingly complicated by him being a renal transplant patient, so Um, He did have a disease-free interval after his last major surgery before these erosions appeared. And we briefly thought about um, PD-1 therapy at that point in time. But given that in the data to date, there's about a 50% chance of organ rejection, we opted not to do that in an adjuvant setting where he was disease-free for the moment. Um, However, when he developed these erosions, we felt that finally there was no other really good option for him, and he was willing to lose his kidney and potentially go on dialysis in order to treat this tumor. So not an easy decision, but that was the decision that he made. We initiated um, PD-1 therapy with pembrolizumab, and he had a complete response, and the tumors um, all regressed. Um, unfortunately, just about the time that he had his complete response, he did start to have rejection of his kidney, but this was successfully treated, and his creatinine came back close to baseline, and he's now um, uh, stable from a renal function point of view, and he's no longer on the pembrolizumab, um, but he's remained disease-free for a total of about five or six months now. So we're hopeful that um, Maybe he could be one of our complete responders, but time will tell. And then this is Jim's own photographs here. And you can see on the left how um, how fulminant this disease can be. And I can only imagine um, how scary to see these tumors grow over the span of a few months.
2: Yep, okay. just about a month, yeah, a yeah. <clears throat> month and a half maybe, Yep. Yeah.
1: And then the photo on the right is after about eight months of simiplimab therapy with complete resolution of the disease. Dr. Jambusiria, could you give us a little bit of your perspective on patients, particularly transplant patients, and how we might approach them now that we have systemic therapy?
3: Absolutely. So, you know, and this comes up a lot. I, I, I'm a tra- I do a lot of transplant dermatology, and so I see a lot of transplant patients. Our transplant patients oftentimes are the ones who get kind of the more aggressive squamous cell cancers and are more likely to have metastatic squamous cell cancer. And so this is a clinical scenario that does not come up infrequently um, in our patients. And as previously discussed, um, PD-1 inhibitors, because they activate the immune system, basically there's a risk to graft function um, if they're put on these medicines. Um, for most organ transplant recipients, um, probably PD-1 inhibitor, inhibitor therapy is not a great option for them. So heart transplants, lung transplants, liver transplants, uh, because the risk of rejection is so high and you can't live without these organs, Um, it's probably not a great option for them. Uh, For renal transplant recipients, however, because they do have that option to go back on dialysis, um, it is something that probably is worth considering, especially if the patient's willing to go back on dialysis. Um, You know, we are doing, there's a lot of research that's going to happen now that the drug is approved, testing these medicines in this specific population to see what is the true risk of you know transplant rejection, are there things that can be done to prevent it. There's case reports in the literature of patients who have lost their graft on PD-1 inhibitor therapy. Um, And there's also case reports of people who have been able to have graft preservation with pulse prednisone as well. So um, I think that the jury is out there. I think that, um, you know, I have a patient who next week is going to be starting this um, who has metastatic squamous cell and is a renal transplant recipient who's willing to go back on dialysis. And as long as patients are well-informed and are willing to kind of consider that option. I think it's worth discussing in them.
1: So to expand a little bit more on this, we often talk about shared decision-making in the context of improving patient outcomes in cancer care, Um, and this is for everyone here on our panel. Do you think that that's relevant here? Um, Do you think that that clinicians are using shared decision-making with our cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma patients?
4: Absolutely. I think we're sharing the decisions between our own colleagues, and we are adequately educating our patients to be on the level to really be involved in their care and their decision-making process. Yeah, I totally agree with
3: that.
1: Do you work with tumor boards? How does that work in terms of your colleagues? And then um, how do you bring that back to patients? There's. Um, There's something called the 3-TALK-ELWIN model um, that emphasizes that it might take more than one conversation with a patient. Um, Patients need to have their options presented, um, then perhaps even at a different time have another conversation about um, alternatives and weighing out those different options um, before they finally come to a consensus. Yeah, so I mean,
3: at our institution, we do have a, tumor, a multidisciplinary tumor board that meets on a regular basis. Um, and if I have a patient who I feel like needs to be considered for a kind of multidisciplinary consultation, uh, we usually discuss it at the visit or at the time of their diagnosis, that this is my plan in terms of what I'm going to be doing, that I'm going to be taking their case to tumor board and we'll call them whenever, they ha- whenever I have kind of a consensus opinion from the tumor board. Um, then their case is presented at tumor board, and I usually follow up with them the same day to let them know what was discussed, but then I also bring them back in the following week to kind of have a face-to-face discussion with the patient, Um, and I think that's really important, like you mentioned, letting the patient hear the same message a couple of times, and also I think giving them time to process all their options and kind of weigh all their options, Um, and usually by that time we're able to come to some kind of consensus
1: as to how's the best way to move forward. Jim, how were your treatment options discussed with you?
2: Okay, at dana they, they were I, I felt they were handled excellently. Um, I, I met with a team that consisted of a surgeon, a uh, radiologist, uh, oncologist, radiology person, as well as an oncologist, and we met and we discussed the different options, and it was fully explained to me the best way they could do it. Uh, what they felt it was. And, and I bought in on that based upon because I had different theories and I know that they were all, you know, looking out for my good. But they were they were very informative and I, I found that very helpful. Even as I went down the road and you know, kind of hit a bump in the road when it started to metastasize, I was still told that there were options, you know, you know we'll work very closely with you. So I, I, I think that uh, overall I was very satisfied with the whole treatment that I got from Dana Faba in and, 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 and the whole um, the way that the message was delivered and how I was going to be treated, I, I found that to be a big, a, a big asset so.:
1: um, One other question for the group. If there's a lack of consensus at Tumor Board um, or among the different colleagues involved on the team, um, how does that get resolved at your institutions?
4: At our tumor boards, if there is a lack of consensus, then we discuss that with the patient and give them the opportunity to be seen in consultation by the differing opinion. It might not actually be a dissenting opinion. It might just be a differing opinion on how you would stagger the therapies. And that's absolutely important to be able to provide to patients.
1: Jim, it sounds like in your experience, your clinicians were pretty unified in their thoughts at different points in time. Um, But how do you think you would have felt if if one doctor had one idea for you, and another felt like there was a different route that was maybe
2: better. Well, I think the fact, even just the open discussion about it, um, you know, if, if somebody not wasn't so much dissenting, but they had a different opinion on it, it would be good to hear that, and I think that would have come out during our discussions. Um, so I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, I think you know, you gotta if you if somebody feels strong enough about one thing. And it has to do with, you know, how it's going to affect you. At least if they share that with you, I, I think that's a a very good thing. I mean, it's just some some more stuff that you've got to go through to, to make your decision. But I, I still think you need to know that. And like I said, I was very fortunate that the team met with me and they, you know, uh, we talked about a few different options, but the the consensus was right out of the gate that we, let's go with the surgical thing and then... You know, then we'll worry about step B, and then we'll worry about C, and after that. But there was, there was a game plan, and I was, I was content with that. I was very content with that. So,
1: so what we've just said about the importance of tumor boards is, is really wonderful. Um, but there are people practicing out in the community who don't have ready access uh, to a tumor board, um, and they're forming their own teams um, as, as needed. Um, what advice could you give to them, Dr. Hamid?
4: So I I would say that it's important to reach out to the colleagues that you utilize in that fashion and have uh, phone calls and direct communication. Um, It's also important to go back to the literature and discuss it with uh, the patient and your colleagues in order to come to an informed decision that may not have happened at one place at one time, but is a dynamic process.
1: Dr. Hammond, could you talk a little bit about the data that's available about shared decision-making?
4: Yeah. So very early in my career, I came to the realization that I was not involving the patients enough and educating them about their situation, about the therapies that they were getting and what to expect and what could be the next therapy afterwards. Uh, so we have gone out and sought those sites or those helpful places for our patients, so make sure that we spend some time discussing with patients what they've heard and how they have taken that in. And if there's a lack of understanding, refreshing or having another visit before a treatment decision is made. There are great resources to help bridge that communication divide. I use uh, magazines that have been set for patients like Cure Magazine or some support groups for certain tumor types Um, but I've also found that a nurse who has experience with similar patients is very helpful and as I've mentioned in the research program our research nurses really help bridge that divide that works to help patients understand what's going on and help physicians as working as a mouthpiece for the patient so saying something like you might not have heard or i've heard or this may not have come across appropriately so we do try and have those visits where the focus is on educating and understanding more i've found that patients who are involved in their care have a better treatment course they feel free to communicate toxicities that Uh, let's be honest, with some of these therapies, can become severe. And if you catch them early, it's much better for the patient.
1: I find that that different patients really do um, react to information, want information in different ways. I have some patients as new consults who will just say, whatever you think, doc, what do you think I should do? And whatever I recommend, they they really want to do that. I've had other patients come in, oftentimes because they've had experiences with different therapies already, and they'll have very clear ideas about what they will and won't accept. And so they're setting you know, some pretty structured boundaries for us to work within. And then, of course, you have patients in between. Um, and so I find that you, know, you really have to adapt... Um, your style and your way of talking to people um, to suit those different situations um, while still trying to provide everybody with the basic information that that you feel they need to make an informed choice. That's all we have for you today. Thank you for participating in this discussion. Please don't forget to take the post-test and complete the evaluation to receive CME credit. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out part one of this educational series where we all dive a bit deeper into the data behind new and emerging systemic therapies for CSCC. Once again, thank you for joining us in this CARE Team Forum. Thank you.
5: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: This activity was jointly provided by AKH Incorporated, Advancing Knowledge in Healthcare, and RMEI Medical Education, LLC. To receive your free CME credit, please be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation by visiting reachmd.com CSCC. Thank you for joining us.